research is creative and requires curiosity and that science can be really fun and interesting because it is a creative process. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Messina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Hello and welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kaida Jesus and today I'll be your host. Today I'm talking to Dr. David LaVisca, Assistant Professor of Chemistry at Seton Hall and previously a professor at Bryn Mawr College, the College of New Jersey and Lafayette College, amongst others. He also has previous experience with Lockheed Martin as a chemist and environmental specialist and maintains a vested interest in green chemistry and sustainability. Dr. LaVisca, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to start with asking, what made you go into teaching? <laughs> this is only a 35-minute podcast, right? <laughs> so, um, well, that's a great question. Boiling it down, if we don't go all the way back into the weeds of my education, I, I got a master's degree right out of undergraduate and started working in the environmental field. And I had always wanted to get a PhD because I was intellectually curious about that process. I wanted that level of training. And for reasons that we may or may not get into, I decided eventually to leave my job working for Lockheed Martin as a contractor with the EPA, the United States Environmental Protection Agency. That's Mm -hmm. where I was working. I left there and I went back to Rutgers to become a full-time graduate student. And actually why I left was because, to be honest, I had gotten bored with my work Mm -hmm. and I wasn't doing anything in the laboratory anymore. And I knew because I had done my research that all of the best work in research most interesting, exciting work in research was given to people holding a PhD degree. So I went back to actually get my PhD and became a full-time teaching assistant, as most graduate students do, even though I was in my mid-30s at the time because I was going back, and discovered that my students responded really well to my teaching. I got these great teaching evaluations that I did not expect because, to be totally frank, I thought I was kind of regimented and a little bit harsh, and I I wasn't really putting effort into building relationships per se. I just was really into the chemistry, and I wanted them to know what they were doing, and I took a very active role, and that resonated with them, and it took a while, but it really made me think about it, and I realized that I just loved the teaching part. It was something that I really enjoyed doing. I did not have a good experience as an undergraduate myself. I didn't feel like I really was able to engage as an undergraduate without a huge fear barrier. And so it occurred to me that as a teacher, I could maybe overcome that for some students and give them a better experience than I had had. So I went back to get it to get a better job in industry and decided within the first two years of my PhD that I would become a professor instead. In a lot of the research that I did, you mentioned that your your interest is in post-secondary or secondary education. Why that section? Ah, so you mean college, university level that. Yeah. Yes. So I guess because research also interests me greatly, and I wanted the latitude to do research. Research isn't even part of the specific job that I was hired for at Seton Hall so far. It's not in my contract. It's not something I'm required to do. 
or even encouraged to do, except by a few of my colleagues in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. But I've been doing it ever since the end of my first year here because I do have very keen interest in it. I love the intellectual exploration, and I think it's a fantastic platform for teaching students. And I wouldn't be able to do research and all that that entails in the student training part of that and the student mentoring and, and all of it's a huge area of intellectual development for the students. And it's very interesting and exciting for me, of course, to answer questions also. And typically most high school and below teachers don't have the latitude to do that. Also, personality-wise, I think that I the 18 to whatever year old is a better age demographic for me. I did quite a bit of high school outreach when I was a graduate student, and I have nothing but thanks and praise for people who teach at the high school level and below. I don't know how they do it, frankly. The level of engagement, patience, all of those things, that's not really my strong suit. Not that I'm an impatient person, but I just think that Students in general find me more approachable once they get to a certain age. I shouldn't really say that. I mean, I got along great with the high school students. It's just it was too limiting for me. The idea of that would have been too limiting. And there are some amazing high school teachers out there who do all kinds of stuff beyond the high school curriculum. So I don't want to sell their job short by any means. I had a good, reasonably good high school experience. I did not have a good undergraduate experience, so I wanted to sort of fill in that. I wanted to give back at that level because that's what I, as a human being, that's where I experienced a significant fall off. And I think that that is common, and I see it in my students here. I see it in students everywhere that I've taught. The high school to college transition is a critical one and a very, very big, it's certainly the biggest maturation point and transition point in your whole educational process. And it works out because I love teaching general chemistry and that happens to be a first year class. So I see students at that time. So it's, to be totally frank, I feel like God put me in this specific place, not only at Seton Hall, but in in this age demographic and all of that. It plays to my strengths as an instructor and I love it. I love what I do. Wow. So by the time this episode is going to be up, it's going to be the height of college decision season. And I've been asking this question a lot because it is college decision season. Why should someone consider a career in sciences or STEM? And who should consider a career in that field? You know, you can't really talk about this kind of topic without generalizing, right? So pretty much no matter what I say will resonate with some people potentially and not with others. Um, I think that that's true of just about all advice. And I I think we have to be humble, those of us who've gone through things, because I've had a path, right? And there are many, many, many millions of millions of millions of possible paths. So, you know, I always try and be very thoughtful when I talk about these kinds of things, because there's really no way to resonate with everyone equally. But I will say that science is first and foremost about curiosity, And I think that that, at least as far as I'm concerned, and I I don't think that a lot of students realize that necessarily, and I don't think there's any bad reason they don't. I just think that you have, as much as you want to feel adult and emancipated as an 18-year-old or as a 20-year-old, as a 22-year-old, you are an adult, but you are still very early in life, and you have very limited life experience. And your values and your goals and the things that you 
want to give as challenges to yourself as a human being, I think, change over the years. And I think it's hard to know as an 18-year-old that, yes, science would be good for me because I'm curious. But that's really what I think science is viewed as potentially lucrative. I think it's viewed as difficult. I think it's viewed as selective and or possibly elite if you go into things like the health sciences or the medical fields. And none of those things is a good reason to go into science as far as I'm concerned. Science is first and foremost about curiosity and all the greatest scientists have been ultimately extremely curious people who have had either the benefit of privilege so that they can actually go in and try and answer the questions that they're curious about because they have the resources, whatever that means, and that's a whole different conversation. Or they have found a way to get themselves into a place where they can answer questions because primarily they're curious. If you try and answer questions or have a career in science Without curiosity, I think it becomes very empty very quickly. And I don't think that you can be that good at it because as far as I'm concerned, the only way to be really good at it is to be curious. And that doesn't mean smart. It just means curious. I think that there are varying levels of intelligence and there's room for everyone in the science enterprise. I don't think that that's really at all even in the top five criteria that should be selected for. But curiosity is a really big one, I think. Dedication and commitment are others because it does take time. I always say in my chemistry class, learning chemistry is like learning a language, and it really is because it takes years, really, to learn enough of the basics so that you can form the sentences and thoughts and small paragraphs that we consider to be actual chemical concepts and thinking about the way reactions work. It takes a long time for everyone to build enough of the you know, the nouns and verbs and parts of speech and sentence constructions, if you want to use that analogy, to get to where you can really understand, see the beauty and feel confidence in your body of knowledge. So it does take persistence and it takes dedication. And yeah, there are certainly people in science who make a lot of money and who are very influential and who have prestige if you know and I see a lot of students that's what they're interested in and I'm not going to knock that but I don't think that that's a good reason to go into a career so I think you know the that's from the student's viewpoint from society's standpoint we badly need scientists we need people to solve problems we have a lot of problems that we're confronting as a society as a global population and we need people who are curious and equipped and confident enough to get out there and figure out how to help humanity move forward in a sustainable way, in a non-harmful way, in a way that embraces compassion and equity, hopefully, but also advances us so that we can live comfortable and healthy lives. But we need people to actually be thinking about those things. So I think science can be very intimidating also. And I, and I, you know, I always tell students, there's room for everyone. We want more voices. We want more people and more creative minds. And we need people to be thinking about this. It's not something for the elite. It's not something only for the smart people. It's for everyone. And the more people we have that are not afraid of it and who are curious about it, the better off we'll be as a society overall. So I think science is an incredibly attractive field and we need more and more and more. We really do. We need, especially, 
well, not especially only in the U.S., but U.S. is one of many countries where science has really fallen off in terms of its popularity. Health sciences have grown like crazy, but hard science, being a marine biologist or being a chemical researcher or being a catalysist or being you know, somebody who solves genetic codes or these kinds of things that involve research are much, much less popular than in many other countries where students are educated from a very young age to realize that science is cool and science is interesting and science is can be an incredibly can be a basis for an incredibly fulfilling career. Yeah. Going more in like in another route in terms of the college selection processes were in that time period. You've worked at a bunch of different colleges and something that I had a lot of trouble with as a high school senior was determining how to differentiate schools. Like, yeah, there's like a different name, but like I would go to these campus tours and I'd be like, okay, like that told me a lot, but I don't really know if I care about any of that stuff. So obviously like you're at Seton Hall, even to other colleges, being at several different college campuses, what is something that you think that seniors should know about like? I can tell you the number one thing that I think is most important that I talk about all the time when I go to the open houses and I try and talk with parents as much as I can because I think it's something that's greatly overlooked. And that is if you're a senior in high school, when you look out there at the world and there's all of these educational institutions, you can very roughly, and this is very rough, I'm generalizing, but you can roughly sift them into two silos. One we might call primarily undergraduate institutions. In the field, we call those PUIs. Those are schools like the College of New Jersey or Ryder University or Lafayette College, where it's almost all or even all of the students are four-year students. And I'm talking four-year schools here. I'm not talking community college. Four years of study and no graduate programs or very few graduate programs. The other main silo we would call the research-based university, or in the vernacular that we talk about, the R1 university. That's a a term for a level of funding from funding agencies, but a research-focused institution. And those tend to be your larger schools, places like Rutgers, for example, Princeton or nearby Columbia, UConn, New York University, Penn State, these kinds of universities, to name a few that are nearby. There are other sort of veins, and I'll talk about that in a second, but those are two pretty different silos. In the primarily undergraduate school, they tend to be smaller, although not always. But at those institutions, understandably, the emphasis is on the undergraduate students, not only the education and making sure that there's very excellent quality education. Usually, of course, there are schools where the the education is less good, but they only are focusing on education of the undergraduates. There's no extra energy put into graduate student education. And so all of the educational focus and whatever research focuses at that institution are focused on undergrads. So it's a very specific kind of undergraduate experience where they, the undergrads themselves are the prime focus. At R1s, at research-based institutions, usually undergraduates, and I'm sure there's plenty of people who are going to listen to this podcast if they're in academia at all are going to roll their eyes or think I shouldn't say this, but undergraduates are oftentimes very neglected because the focus really is on the graduate programs because the funding monies are there and those 
criteria for that money have to be met and a certain amount of research has to be done and they have gigantic graduate programs and for the most part not all but most of the professors are there because they're excellent researchers and they've been chosen to do that job and undergraduate education is a very low priority in general and I am extremely generalizing here there are fantastic undergraduate professors at R1 institutions but in general it's easier for an undergraduate to get lost in the mix. And I went to an R1 as an undergraduate, so I know exactly what that feels like. That said, R1s offer a whole bunch of other things to undergraduates that PUIs can't give them, which is the same things that I just talked about, graduate students. Having graduate students nearby, having them in the research labs is a fantastic resource for undergraduates. Typically, those schools are extremely well-funded from the research money. So there's, the equipment's excellent, the facilities are phenomenal, the teaching facilities tend to be good. So there are benefits to that R1 status for the undergraduates. So it's kind of a give and take. Seton Hall and some other schools, and this is, I think, very difficult to find out for students who are high school seniors and their parents, Seton Hall is what's considered to be an R2. We're right in between where... We have a decent-sized graduate student population. The chemistry PhD here was the first PhD granting program established on the Seton Hall campus, I think, in 1958, if I'm not wrong. I could be wrong, um, but sometime about that long ago. And so we have graduate students. We have postdocs in not all departments, but many departments, and though they can mentor undergraduates. We have a research focus, so that it's there, but we also have a very strong commitment to undergraduate education. The undergraduate education here, I think, is extremely excellent and certainly better than, I won't name names, but other institutions with which I've been closely affiliated that are R1s. So I think that's my number one. I know this kind of sort of detail and it's not about feelings and it's not about aptitude and it's not about areas of interest. It's much more about the nuts and bolts. But I think that's a really big deal because if you're a PUI kind of student because you maybe you're not that social or maybe you grew up in a rural area or maybe you want less giant experience, then an R1 is probably going to be a tough go for you. And for me, I would grow up in a rural high school. You know, I was second in my class and I didn't have a huge high school graduating class. I think we had about 175 students in my class. And I went off to this R1 undergraduate school, you know, just an hour away at Cornell University. And it was like suddenly this giant place. And I was just floundering for really my entire undergraduate education. It took me to that much time to get my feet under me and really find my way around and gain confidence and so on. So I think that's a big overlooked thing that students don't often think about is the kind of focus, specifically whether it's an undergraduate school or a school with a giant graduate program. Right. I, I always talk about that because I think it's incredibly important. So you mentioned a lot about research, and I want to talk about a little bit about your own research. And one thing that caught my eye was the LEADER program, which, if I read the abstract correctly, is it seeks to give high school students the skills that they need to do their own research. Because, you know, in high school, it's like, dissect this frog. All right, what did you learn? Not really, like, allowing students to ask their own questions. Can you talk a little bit more about why this would be important? Absolutely. So the leader program was, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I haven't really thought about that in a while. So that's a, an outreach program that I started in conjunction with my PhD advisor at Rutgers. It's a long story as to why it came about, but the idea was that um, it was 
loosely based on climate change only because that was such a hot button topic and everyone knew about it. But really what it was, was a program in which we went into high schools and offered high school science students the opportunity to design their own experiment. Some years we asked the question, other years we would have them come up with a question and then design their own experiment. And in other words, to make their hypothesis, test their own hypothesis, just, and we would have them design it and we would approve it. And of course it had to be not dangerous and it had to be not toxic and it had to be not expensive and all of these things. But primarily it was just literally herding cats. I mean, it was, you know, all over the place and Frankly, I don't think any of the experiments were either any ever rigorous enough to show much of anything, but that was fine because what we were trying to convey, the message we were trying to convey was that research, asking questions, designing experiments is an incredibly creative process. And students are not really given that opportunity. Certainly not usually. I always have to say usually because there's always exceptions. But when we teach, and this is true at the college level also, we have a lot invested in, in giving students recipes, basically, for experiments so that they work because we're trying to illustrate concepts through the experiment itself. We're trying to teach something like, for example, equilibrium and how you can move an equilibrium reaction back and forth. And so we put an experiment in the lab that we know works. If you heat it, it does one thing. If you add acid, it does another thing. And so students are getting hands-on experience, but they're also seeing the concepts playing out in front of them. And this is true, we have a lot more latitude for that at the college level than they do in high schools, but it's the same thing in high school. What students don't get to do is think about that question. How would I design an experiment? How would I show this thing? And so that's where undergraduate research becomes incredibly powerful. And so in the LEADER program, what we were trying to do is give students the idea that, or help them see that research is creative and requires curiosity and that science can be really fun and interesting because it is a creative process. But we were also trying to connect that to the idea of research so they could see, oh wow, I could actually do this as a career. I could pose questions and design experiments to find answers to those questions. And this is creative. It's not just about learning something in a book and do, going in the lab and adding things together and mixing them and writing down numbers and handing in lab reports, right? Which is really, and there are reasons why it is like that. But so I have a bunch of research students in my lab here and it's incredible to watch them asking questions or I ask questions and have them think about it and try and figure out how to answer the question or look perplexed when a reaction doesn't go the way they expect because we're doing new things. It's not a recipe. It's something that they're trying to see if it works or not. So it all comes back to the curiosity part again. I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that you have a vested interest in green chemistry and sustainability. And I've noticed a lot I believe there was something at the time of this recording, news about these three scientists that had chained themselves to a door because of fears of climate change. And there's a lot of not listening to scientists about the environment. Does it ever get emotionally exhausting thinking about that? And how do you deal with that sort of like external like downness, I guess? <laughs> uh, that's a, another wonderful question. It makes me sad that I think that one of the things I haven't mentioned about science yet, let me put it this way, I don't think we've talked about this at all, and that is that 
along with the curiosity and along with the exploration and along with the creativity, there's also great uncertainty, right? I mean, this is how we have evolved and developed over the last thousands of years, and science specifically has come an incredible distance in the last 200 years, especially the last 100 years. But there's always uncertainty. We have theories, right? We don't have typically laws. It takes a long, long time before something can be called a law, right? We all remember this from seventh grade science or something like that. And, but the reason is because there's always uncertainty. And I think one of the things that we buy into as scientists, because we have to, is that we have to find comfort with that uncertainty. There's always some uncertainty. There's always, there are always more questions to be answered. And so you can look at that as an exciting thing. Yay, I can use my curiosity. This is fun. There's more questions. Or you can be sort of fearful of that uncertainty. So I think that uncertainty, especially now that we live in a time where answers, let's just use that term, whether they're right or wrong or not is another issue. Answers are available to anyone at the click of a button on a computer, whether they're relevant or not, whether they're correct or not, but there are answers of sort there. And that helps people of all sorts feel less uncertainty if they can have an answer. So it's very tempting, I think, to want a solid answer, to not want to have to live with the uncertainty, to feel like you're an expert. And I think that that has led, because of human nature, to people, I don't know that it's distrusting science as much as people are just, seem to be just wanting to become their own autonomous scientists because they have some sense that they can get an answer from somewhere and that they know what that answer is. So from a human nature standpoint, I understand that. But that's far from what science is all about. Once upon a time, you know, when information wasn't readily available, people just trusted scientists because they trusted that they were trained to do their job and that they went through a lot of education and they benefited from the innovations and the advances. Now things are very different because of access to information. And I'm not trying to say that it's all bad because it isn't. There are many great parts of it, but I do think it has become very complicated. So emotionally exhausting, I guess so, but I think it just mainly makes me sad because I feel I feel badly for people who are cutting themselves off from that exquisite humanity of living with uncertainty because you know you can do all of these things to try and make yourself feel more certain but ultimately there is uncertainty there's always uncertainty so I feel badly that people don't take scientists as seriously maybe as they once did. I hope that we find a mechanism to help that change. I do feel anger about politics and politicians who, in their positions of power and privilege, misuse that kind of false information or pat answers because they themselves are human beings and they also want answers, right? And they have, and it can become very complicated. But yes, I, I think it is tiresome. We'll put it that way. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I do have one last question for mm-hmm. you. And that is, if there was one thing you wanted the listener to take from today's episode, what would it be? What I would say is find a way to be comfortable with uncertainty. I think that we've been talking about science, of course, because that's one of my 
several passions, and I have enough years of experience to have become comfortable with uncertainty. I certainly was not comfortable with that as an undergraduate student. For all the undergraduate students that hear this, I would tell you that you're not alone and that someday that embracing that uncertainty will become your most powerful tool because it's only when we recognize that we're uncertain that we can give ourselves permission to express our full humanity and really go out and find answers and explore and expand ourselves and be our fullest, truest selves. You, you can't really do that if you aren't willing to at least look at the uncertainty and find a way to live with that. And I think part B of that is if you can think about that part of it, then try and enjoy the science around you because it really is all around you, whether you're a science major or not. It's a very stunningly complex but beautiful world that we live in. If you walk around right now, at the time of this recording at least, the trees are blooming and spring seems to finally be here and it's just incredible to watch that all happening and it's science. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving me your insight today and for our listeners, we'll hear from you next week. On behalf of everyone at the Pasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU, for allowing us to use their facilities, and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership, on Instagram at Pasita Leaders, and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. <laughs>